Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at this campus, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Grace Sutanto, Dr. Peter Lee, and Dr. Tommy Keene, and we have a special treat today of welcoming welcoming a couple of guests, uh, Dr. Marinus de Jong and Dr. Corey Brock, both pastors and scholars of neo-Calvinism, and they're going to be joining us today to talk about uh, their life and their work and the stuff that's going on right now in their area of studies. But to move on to that, I want to pass it over to Dr. Gray Sutanto to pick up the thread and introduce our guests. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Scott. Yeah, Marinus de Jong is pastor of Oosterpark Kirk in Amsterdam and also assistant professor of the theology of neo-Calvinism at the Theological University of Utrecht. That's a fantastic mm-hmm. title. And Corey Brock is pastor at St. Columbus in Edinburgh, right there in the Royal Mile, and also a lecturer of systematic theology at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. Now, we have collaborated on many different projects, especially in relation to the theology of Kuiper and Bavink, the tradition of neo-Calvinism. But I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in this particular combination of vocations that the both of you inhabit, both a pastor on the one hand, but also doing scholarship, having done your PhDs and also still engaged in scholarship right now, um, writing publications to the highest level, speaking in conferences and things like that. And how do, the, how do these two things go together for you? How did you discern this call? And is it even possible to be a pastor scholar? Yeah, that, that's a good question, if it's possible. I'm still wondering myself very often if it's possible <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> I have been... So for me, when I went to seminary, I was I did that to, because I wanted to be a pastor. Um, that was the, the calling I felt then, I discerned then. And um, yeah, then and when I ended up like doing my master's thesis and I got in touch with people who were doing PhDs and th- that world kind of opened to me, um, and then I was considering, yeah, that this is also maybe a calling, which I hadn't seen when I started at all. Um, and people encouraged me to do it. So, and then it was a, a, position, a possibility of doing it. So it kind of came to me and I, well, there's people encouraging you to combination and seeing also the value of it. Um, <clears throat> but then through, so did, I did my PhD um, in Kampen, which is now Utrecht. Um, hmm. On, uh, on Klaas Schilder, which is a neo-Calvinist scholar. We may, may talk about him later, or we may not. Um, and um, and then, but then when I finished, I really felt like, I, okay, I, I really want to be a pastor now. I, I didn't want to uh, pursue academia because I also, like, just reading, reading books and writing for three years also felt kind of, it, it felt kind of unreal to do that, mm-hmm. like not, not having a good connection with the real world in some ways. And I, I felt disconnected, I think, mm-hmm. a bit. Um, so I really wanted to work in the church and so then I got a call from a church in Amsterdam and I started working there which indeed was a relief and I, I also felt it was very healthy for my theology to just be working as a pastor um, I mean only like thinking and reflecting in this this theology bubble for three four years and then all of a sudden just come meeting like in very concrete people who I remember this this women coming up to me who, who only became a believer later in life and she and she just came into question yeah so so all, all of my children what's gonna what's mm-hmm. gonna happen to all of my children who are not followers of christ 
You know, very simple question. Um, <laughs> no, and uh, what happened? But that question, like compared to what happened to my theological reflection before that, was so profound and helpful. I thought, and um, so yes. But then also being in, so I've been a pastor in Amsterdam now for four years, almost five. I also felt that I felt like the, well, the the the, the academic uh, work. I missed that too. So I mm-hmm. want to do that as well. Um, so like both those callings are still there, um, and I. Yeah, and so now I have the first three or four years, I didn't have any position uh, at a university, but now I have um, part-time. And I've, I've been doing that for only one year, so I, I don't know how it's going to work. It's it's a strain sometimes, and it's hard to have those two worlds, which do enrich each other very much. But also, yeah, it's just both worlds are very demanding, as you all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church never stops, and also the academy does the same kind of. So it's, um, yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes, but I, I, I really hope it's going to, to work um, mm. and keep working because it's, it's so helpful in how it, I think it just makes you a better theologian working in the church and also being a theologian, having more time to study and to, to, th- to think in more depth and have more time, not always connected to something concrete, to a sermon or a piece you have to write for the consistory, right. um, but just like having more space for free reflection is really, yeah, I think making, working well in two ways. Um, so, mm. Yeah, I wish I could continue, but I'm not sure if it's going to it's going to work. What, what about you, Corey? Yeah, I mean, I would say very similar things. I mean, one of the thoughts that popped into my head when you were talking is just that theology is for preaching, and theology is ultimately for people. It's to serve, it's to know God and, and serve people and help people know God more. And so I came to seminary uh, believing that I was called to ministry, um, feeling uh, and believing still that that I'm called to preach first and to share the gospel first with as many people as I can. And so the opportunities have just kind of unfolded for me, I guess, over the years to do research, to study, to write. And it seems almost like God has offered a calling there, a, a door open keeps opening, and I keep walking through it at the same time, trying to manage the two worlds but also trying to integrate them and say that ultimately, I mean, for all of you guys, it's the same, right? That you uh, are ultimately here to, to serve the church, even if you're writing full-time and doing and doing nothing else or teaching full-time and doing nothing else. And so we're all pastor scholars to some degree, I think, scholarly pastors. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of depends on how you invert the language and uh, to what percentage you put on each. Um, but there's a shepherding role uh, to the depths in the midst of being a mere scholar when done for the sake of the church. And so uh, I, I always em- embrace that, that no matter how it ended up, I was going to be a pastor scholar in whatever environment. But I do think that God has called me to stay in the life of the church, at least for this season of life, and um, more more full-time, and to be uh, preaching weekly and working on evangel- evangelistic efforts in, a, in an urban city that's... Edinburgh, where I am, is uh, 98% unreached um mm. about 98 percent of all the people in the city would attend church less less than once a month um and uh so we have a huge a huge calling there but this the growing scholarship of, at a place like edinburgh theological seminary next door to, to new college divinity where gray and i studied is a really important piece of that too um <clears throat> we recently um were thinking about all of us together um the work of Keller in writing Center Church and how it's going to uh, last and, and affect a philosophy of ministry in, in urban context for the future. But one of the last things Keller wrote 
was uh, in 2022 was this series of essays on how to seek renewal in the West. You guys probably looked at these. And he talked about seven to eight different network uh, development projects that needed to happen to reshift the culture of a city towards building an altar where God might send revival. And one of those was the development of Christian public intellectuals and how important uh, networks that develop young people to seeing the value of being a Christian and a public intellectual at the same time are. Um, So on the one hand, you've got to have that. You've got to have uh, robust networks of mercy ministry, uh, ministry to the poor. It's got to be holistic and from every side. And so whether or not, you know, we're doing 80% scholarship, 20% shepherding or vice versa, um, it's all participating. As long as it's all participating in that one great movement um, to see the city restored in the name of Christ, then um, then it's all good. I'm curious to how do y'all think that the academic has informed your pastoral? Is that I think the it's natural to think about the pastoral informing the academic that this is not just esoteric. It's it's for the church as you as you said, Corey. Sometimes I I find that the other way is not as immediately intuitive. How how does the kind of detailed work that you're doing inform your your pastoral ministry? Yeah, a couple ways that come to my mind. Um, one is that, you know, when you go take your car, you've heard this illustration, you take your car to the mechanic, a great mechanic can explain what's wrong with your car to you in a way that you can understand it. Whereas you get nervous about a guy who uh, can't quite tell you what's wrong. He says that he knows that he knows, but he couldn't explain it to you. And I think uh, when when... True scholarship is at its best. Uh, it helps somebody to become a great mechanic, to be able to go and tell somebody else actually in simple ways the profundity of the truth. So, I mean, one of the things I hope that has happened in, in my scholarship is that I've become a little better at talking about why theology matters for the human being and why theology, in, in a way that's accessible and that's contextualized and that's clear. So I think actually... The further in you go in reading and study, the better you can come out on the other side uh, with simple profundity. Um, so that would be one, one way. The other way is our particular world, the neo-Calvinist world of thought, I do think offers the best theological framework, or theological vision for a philosophy of ministry that works in the modern West um, and, and elsewhere as well. So I think being able to spend more time on that has helped uh, develop philosophy and ministry uh, that that has been great, obviously, for Edinburgh, a a city-centered church like I have, like I'm a part of. um, So, Yeah, I think I I completely recognize what you say and I agree there. But I think for me also, for my specific context, so... So the churches I'm in, they, they are like new Calvinist churches, like historically. They just c- directly come from the churches where Bavig and Kuiper were a part of. Um, so it's part of our heritage. Um, and like in the church I'm in has kind of like is or is losing and also has lost the connection with its roots. They, they, they tend to be generally a disfavorable look towards that tradition. Um, seeing it as like the old outdated stuff that we... And, and emphasizing the problems there are in the tradition, and there are problems, of course, uh, but only seeing that. 
and I think me being uh, connected to this like worldwide um, like revival we could say of neo-Calvinism is a kind of paradoxical uh, because in my own context there is no interest in this tradition or not much so what happens at my role in the church becomes someone who has a kind of positive connection with our own history that is very surprising to many people and they're like oh really are you are you making a podcast about this tradition and actually people are listening to that podcast um and did, did you did you translate our books into english and then people buy that book um yes that is happening so i i also through my scholarship i kind of become an historical consciousness of my church a little bit um and i think our, in this co- my co- this context the church needs that um, and they they have they are kind of at risk of losing that, which is I think to the is is one of the problems our church has. Although many people don't see that problem, um, so this is a very concrete way and specific one how it worked for me. Yeah, we had George Herring on uh, a couple of years ago, I think, a year and a half ago, and he commented he, t- he was talking about the fact that when you, you're telling people about Bob Inc. and they're like, well. There's a road outside that's that's named after Bob Inc. You know, or, yeah. or, or oh, Kuiper right. Kuiper Avenue. Is that the guy you're talking about? You know, but kind of vague. You know, yeah. not not necessarily yeah. aware of their thoughts and their ideas. No, and, not at all. Yeah. No. And oftentimes, that sort of forgetfulness. They're not. They're gonna say all these critiques about Bob Inc. Kuiper, and they think this show outdated. You know, dusty books on the shelf and things like that. And then when I ask them, well, what about their theology? Do you not like? They're not actually able to articulate it. Mm. No, and sometimes, so Keller's books are immensely popular in the Netherlands, right? And I keep telling them, so what you like in Keller is, oh, yeah. that's your own tradition. Yep. Um, <laughs> and what he, they like... He said that near the end. I mean, wasn't he over the last few years? He's been saying that neo-Calvinism oh, yeah, he's is been the best expression. Becoming more explicit. Right. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And that's, that's very strange for the Dutch people to hear. And with, kind of with Tom Wright, it's the same. So, so often they like emphasize, emphasize of Tom Wright, mm-hmm. which I think are very neo-Calvinistic. Yeah. I think they like Tom Wright because it resonates with um, some, some stuff they already have in their, in their bones, so to speak, yeah. without realizing it's, uh, it, it's there where it's coming from. What, what's, uh, uh, you said that the Dutch community has kind of lost touch with the historic roots of their neo-Calvinistic heritage, what is replaced that now? What is what is the popular form of Christianity now? That's a good question. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's there. There are many answers to that. Um, <clears throat> there are, of course, we have liberalism as you have it here, um, but that's not so much in the church I am in. It's a little bit different, I think. But some um, some like. The like emerging church people, Brian McLaren, for example, has been translated oh, also. Still, people like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but 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 also, um, but also, Wright and Keller are popular in many circles. So then they 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 tend to like go back to where they where they come from. Um, yeah, and and sometimes I think for my own church where I'm in, I I sometimes this is if, if anybody in the Netherlands listens to this, they will maybe disagree with what We've I'm going to say we're now. Big, we're big in the Netherlands. We're big. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, yeah, I think they are uh, they are also lost a little bit and don't know at the moment where to go um, and just are like uprooted a bit and. Yeah. Have lost their connection and look into so it's uh, yeah it's it's also open I when guess the sources are right there underneath their feet yes mm. that's your the Dutch listeners are listening 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just got to pull it off the shelf. That's well, right. as a uh, as the uh, resident OPC guy here, um, I kind of resonate with being in a community that's lost touch with its roots. No one understands Machen anymore, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, mm-hmm. reads about them much everything except within the OPC. We're the only ones, and we're a very small community within uh, the American Reformed Presbyterian world, and so I get it. Uh, Corey, I was curious. Um, uh, the or uh, the uh, you had mentioned earlier when you were sharing a a neo Calvinistic kind of vision of the church or or philosophy of ministry a neo Calvinistic philosophy of ministry. Uh, what would that kind of sound like? Could you uh, 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 unfold that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, these guys can definitely chime in on this. Um, By the way, this would be a great episode in the future. Grace yeah. in common. Episodes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're sort of doing this uh, this week in New York at our at our conference. Uh, this is what we're go- I think we're going to talk largely about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll mention one way. You guys can hop on. One way would be that there is no singular form or expression uh, for how to speak the gospel to someone. So that you can speak the gospel to people in, uh, in a multi-form of possibilities uh, that you can start really anywhere with who they are, the questions and concerns they have, uh, the existential crises that they're existing in, and speak about how Christ, uh, what Christ came for and why in the light of that particular need. So the neo-Calvinist uh, philosophy of ministry, if you will, if, it, if it's gospel-centered, and it is, would begin by saying something like, uh, the, gospel, the gospel is a historical set of propositions to be believed. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Christ Jesus died, he rose again for our sins, according to the scriptures. Um, but the gospel uh, affects everything as well. So there's a broad gospel. Um, we could think about salvation history, redemptive history, and all that 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 means. But within those two frames, the narrow gospel and the broad gospel, the gospel can be framed in the light of any context Mm -hmm. to be able to 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 preach to anybody anywhere. Um, And so I I don't think that, I think that it's very possible to to grow up in a a culture and a context and not not get out of that much and not not agree or not, not quite see that. Um, and so that would be one thing that uh, neo-Calvinist theological vision or philosophy of ministry would want to say, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, what, one of the things that you're saying there, and you talk about this term, theological vision or philosophy of ministry, drawing from Keller Center Church, and the thing that's just fresh in our minds because we're, we're doing this retrospective on Keller Center Church in New York City. Say, yeah, just say a bit about that, what's going on this weekend. Yeah, so uh, we have a podcast called Grace in Common, and we've been going on for about a year and a half now, three seasons worth of material, just drawing from the neo-Calvinist tradition, talking about the distinctives of that tradition from Bovink and Kuiper, mm-hmm. and also as permutations for today. And so um, this weekend, particularly, we have, we well, we've had a wonderful grant from the Abraham Kuiper Leadership Fund mm-hmm. so that we can fund this trip now to New York City and in partnership with City to City and Redeemer um, uh, Presbyterian Church, we're going to talk about um, Keller Center Church as a retrospective and also Keller's works on how to reach the West again in relation to the neo-Calvinist tradition. I mean, Center Church was written about 10 years ago now, 11 years ago. 
and um, things have changed in a decade. And there's a lot more resources within the Bobby and Kuiper tradition now within the last decade. So we just wanted to talk about what it looks like today to apply Center Church and also to broader to broaden its context with regard to its connection to this past historical tradition um, that we're really interested in. So that's going on this weekend on Friday and Saturday. So Center Church is fresh in our minds as we think about um, its insights, its contributions, and also its crit- maybe potential needs for updates and potential critiques of that particular work. But one of the things he says in that book, which I think Corey is drawing from, is this idea of a theological vision, which is between theological foundation, which is the, the most basic theological doctrine that you have, eternal truths, the mm-hmm. Bible, and of course for us in our context, Westminster Confession of Faith, codifying and summarizing what the Bible says. And then um, on the other hand is the ministry expression, right? In other words, what the church actually looks like in a particular local context. And what Keller says there is that the philosophy of ministry or this theological vision is between theological foundation and ministry expression. So every church, for instance, in the PCA or the OPC, or in my context as well, the IPC, would have the same theological foundation, the Westminster Confession of Faith, but why does every church kind of look different, right? Why does my church in Jakarta, which also upholds the Westminster Standards, look and feel quite different from an IPC church in London, which upholds the Westminster Confession of Faith? Um, someone who is not aware of philosophy of ministry yeah. might take a look at these two different churches and say, well, that must be a difference in doctrine because they don't sing the same songs or the liturgy feels a little bit different, right? Or the preaching could sound a little bit different. Uh, but it's not really a difference in doctrine. It's a difference of a philosophy of ministry because um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a wonderful and and I think the best summary of the biblical truth. But it doesn't tell you how to connect the Westminster Confession of Faith to a context like Jakarta. For that, you need a philosophy of ministry. And I think neo-Calvinism helps you in that um, this gospel that is universal, this confession of faith that I think upholds universal truth can be applied to different contexts in different ways while upholding um, the timelessness of that truth, right? And and neo-Calvinism is happy with this paradox that the truth is one, but the truth is also multiform. The truth is one, it transcends everything, but also it can take shape in any culture in its own distinctive way. Um, and that's the beauty of the gospel, it's the catholicity of the gospel that is able to do that. So that's another so, so the idea, I mean, the formulation I often hear, and one of you all probably wrote this, is, 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 is the, the engagement with the Orthodox and the modern mm-hmm. is kind of uh, an aspect of neo-Calvinism. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the modern. It sounds like it's it's engagement with orthodoxy and whatever context whatever in which you're operating. Yeah. They yeah. happen to be operating in the modern, in yes. the late 19th, early 20th century, but it's a variety. It's any context. It can be Jakarta. It can be Southeast Asia 500 years ago. Yep. You know, it can be... Yeah, culture definitely. Yeah, I also it also connects to like I really like how Kuiper does that. He he, he always he often uses the, the pair of pantheism and deism um, when to describe like where where like Christianity or, or Calvinism or the Reformed is, situates itself. Then in saying we neither say that God is um, is the deistic view. God is like out has created the earth maybe but has left has left the building so to speak and he's not there. He doesn't connect anymore. Neither do we say that we are on the pantheistic side where we say that God is the same as uh, or coincides with this earth and this realm. But God is, so he's not away, but he's not, he doesn't, he's not the same, but he is profoundly connected and concerned with history, what happened with this earth. 
Um, and I think this is a result of that view. Yeah. That and I think that's something that you you can speak better to this. It's also very much in the Old and the New Testament. That God really, I mean, incarnation itself is this, right? That God enters history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is that is this probably the deep, um, maybe the deepest like theological grounding for that this is true, that we need to be Orthodox and modern, and that this yeah. is, the, and that we need to contextualize the gospel in every place and age. Yeah. yeah, yeah even that right? doctrine of organic inspiration, right? The mm-hmm. scripture is revealed in a way That's that makes same, sense. Yeah. Yeah, from, from old to new, but also throughout the old. I mean, you've got a millennia worth of history and culture change there, yeah. and the prophets can say things that are intelligible to their audiences and, and compelling. Right, yeah. and I think it's, it's that basic insight that no matter what age you're speaking the gospel into, you're always speaking to people who are already exposed to the natural knowledge of God, right? Mm-hmm. And that natural knowledge of God is felt in the heart. It's intuitive, and even though people profess different beliefs about it, because they suppress the truth, um, it's still there underneath everything. So people never profess that which is in accordance with what they know inside. And mm-hmm. the gospel, when it's presenting to them, actually taps into yeah. that which they suppress inside. Yeah, another aspect of the philosophy of ministry applied here on that note would be that a neo-Calvinist theology gives way more often to an evangelistic culture that is more focused on the effective models yes. of evangelism than rationalistic models. So it's trying to, uh, instead of starting with rational proofs, it wants to start more with worldview mindset. And in worldview mindset, uh, you know that everybody has been encountered by the living God, that God has revealed himself to every single person, and that their worldview, if it stands outside or away or apart from Christianity, is pushing back against reality as it actually is. And so neo-Calvinist, apologetic and evangelistic culture um, wants to say, uh, wants to ask people to test their framework, how they understand reality in life up against reality in life Mm -hmm. and ask whether or not the framework that they're existing in and living in and thinking through actually makes sense of both their existential needs and their intellectual needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it pushes on the effective and then and only then, after pushing, uh, pushing the heart, does it say, okay, now look, within that, science is actually, the scientific enterprise has actually offered us intellectual proofs that are helpful, rationalist, rationalist proofs that are helpful. Uh, so that would be another, another philosophy of ministry component. Yeah. And so the basic insight there, too, because of that focus on the affective and the heart dimensions of life, yeah. is that even though unbelief might take different forms, so when I go to Jakarta, most people do believe in God, but they believe in a God of, uh, let's say, judgments in particular contexts, or a God of universal salvation or something like that. But really, or in the West now, you might meet an atheist, and they might meet, you might meet an agnostic person who doesn't even care whether or not God exists. But whether you're meeting an agnostic, an atheist, or a universalist, or the God of Islam or something like that, the neo-Calvinist insight is that underneath all these different permutations is that desire to get away from God's judgment that they mm-hmm. know that they have wronged God, mm-hmm. and they want to therefore either modify God's judgment such that we can actually get off the hook or deny that God exists so that we are off the hook or make ourselves look better so that we are going to pass God's judgment, mm-hmm. right? So they're always modifying something about their vulnerability before God, whether their dependence on God or the judgment of God on the other hand, right? If I can just, just put a small example from my own context, there's this colleague of mine, he's a church planter in Amsterdam. He at some point... Um, he works really like 
he, he doesn't have a church. He really works like outside of the church, but tries to bring f- the gospel into like especially artistic communities there. And what he once did was he he put a, on the wall he put a, the the Our Father. Just a different. And he mm-hmm. said he gave markers, and he said you you just you just do whatever you want, adapt mm-hmm. it, um, <laughs> take things away. So a lot happened, and after half an hour, almost all was gone, um, or replaced, apart from one line: "Forgive us our sins." Hmm. Right, yeah. and that that was surprising to everyone. Really <laughs> Nobody that. expected that. Mm. Um, <laughs> so these are atheistic people who mm. are very far from Christian, don't know the language, tradition, really anything. But this is what what they what they needed or what they, right. they wanted to be there. So one of the insights is that as we move to a post-Christian Western society, people know that they're sinful, but they've lost the vocabulary for sin. Mm. Right, yeah. and yeah. Yeah. They they're naming it, it. They, exactly. Yeah. They, they, they like it. And so there's this pliability with regard to this yeah. tradition. One of the ways I think about it too is, I think the neo-Calvinist theology that gives way to this philosophy of ministry is encapsulated in preaching. I mean, because if you ask, well, I don't know how you guys would answer this, but what what makes good preaching? And I mean, to notes. me, having good notes, having good, having notes. good notes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Sorry, sorry to bring you into this. Yeah. Okay. Corey's a via media on this one. I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, to me, at least two of the most important components of of, of great preaching are preaching Christ to the heart, yeah. the effective dimension right. of preaching. Now, you, you want to preach Christ to the heart w- with the mind thrown in. But if you l- drop one of them, drop the mind. <laughs> you know, to preach Christ to the heart. Uh, but, of course, do both. And then the other aspect is contextualized. You know, even even pitch, even um, uh, tone, even uh, whether or not you are overly emotional in your preaching or not is all about con- context. You know, how, how best can the person right. hear Christ? Uh, what images are you using? What illustrations are you using? So in the context of Mississippi, where I'm from, it's rare to not hear, you know, in America, uh, say American football, 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 I've been in Edinburgh, uh, <laughs> say American football, football illustration in preaching. But, you know, obviously you don't want to do that most other places. And mm-hmm. that's a s- simple, silly, obvious example. But, uh, but contextualization and preaching to the effective, to the heart, mm-hmm. are, the, are the two, two things that, that make good preaching, that you need to have in preaching, I think. And that, that in some ways is kind of the heartbeat of a neo-Calvinist philosophy of ministry, if it's simplified. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the, another example of that yeah. is, you know, when we were in Jakarta, because it's such a high shame, honor sort of context where people are always having their masks up. People are always trying to front that they're okay. People are always trying to front that their families are great because they need to show off at church. They dress incredibly well at church. They make sure that all their kids look fantastic and things like that. One of the things that we had to emphasize in our ministry was the propriety of lament, that mm-hmm. you can be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And the church is a, it really is a safe place for you to do that. And I remember people, and even you know my wife was part of this, she was like, I can't believe we're actually allowed to weep at church. We're actually allowed to express our problems at church. We're actually allowed to do this. And yet without the overriding shame that could come with that in a normal sort of Jakarta context of society, which is why, by the way, Instagram is huge in Jakarta because people are always fronting everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, we went to a, a black church here and right here in Grace, D.C., at least led by Russ Whitfield. And his worship ministry there is very much influenced by the black church. And there was hardly any songs of lamentation at church. And I remember um, Indita, my wife, was like, oh, I really miss, you know, the lament sort of 
tingeness of the hymns that we used to sing back in Jakarta. And we talked to him about it, and he said, well, you know, with regard to the history of the black church, there was always so much lamentation that the mm. church needed to be a place of joy yeah. where we can express happiness in the Lord. And so we, mm. we put our lamentations behind. And yeah. so that's why the songs we sing are just filled with joy and people are dancing and things like that. And I was like, oh, that made a lot of sense. Yeah. And so while somebody who's not aware of contextualization might be tempted to say, well, there must be a difference in doctrine between the church in Jakarta and the church here. Two different gospels. Two different gospels, yeah. right? Different ways of right. understanding how music works, doctrinally speaking. When actually, no, he believes in the Westminster Standards, I believe in the Westminster Standards. But the context needs different things. You know, I remember there was an American Baptist minister who came to Jakarta, and he was talking to a bunch of parents in the context of a Chinese and Indonesian Christian school. And his main, con- his main message was, Father, discipline your children. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, wow, what a misstep yeah. in contextualization. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because that is, it, it, that's, not the, that's not what people think of first when they think of Calvinism. Right. But even, I mean, I know we're talking about neo-Calvinism, but it's also true of Calvinism. I mean, if you ask Calvin, what does he think about his life and ministry? He'd say, I'm a heart of flame. You know, he felt like this was a very engaging, mm. heartfelt, uh, impassioned spiritual spiritual <laughs> theological system and it's interesting that in the uh, in the history of the church Calvinist and its and its descendants Calvinism and its descendants have become thought of as highly rational and intellectual and coldly not doing what you said needs to happen which is preached to the heart and it's a good reminder for us that this tradition has a deeply effective mm-hmm element to it all the way from the beginning Absolutely. Yeah, that was a question i actually had was because um I, tr- I genuinely resonated with the way that you you guys are both uh, balancing your academic careers and pursuits with pastoral ministry and and tr- and trying to balance those two aspects um i remember uh reading calvin's institutes when i was in seminary just cover to cover and and taking away from that uh, the pastoral heart of Calvin, which rarely comes out in mm-hmm. lectures or classes, uh, as well as the, just the brilliant systematician and theologian that he was. But you never think of Calvin the pastor. Uh, and I was just blown away with just how pastoral he was in his theological uh, instruction and how a true Calvinist pastor is really is going to be the one who can balance the two and do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, the way you describe your lives now uh, is so great and reflective of that where you know we in the modern world have now just kind of created this huge chasm between the two and you really if you're going to be a good pastor you're not really going to be a good theologian and vice versa tragically we have done that which is really not in the best tradition of our reformed heritage mm-hmm. um i guess my question is uh in the in the history of the dutch reformed church ha- has that been always the case that that you've always had kind of pastor scholars uh, doing both kind of the work of theological training education as well as pastoral ministry in that kind of balanced way? It's a good question. I, w- I wouldn't be able to answer it for the entire history of the Dutch church, but um, at least I know, and it's still the case, that like almost all uh, professors of theology were pastors first. Um, that mm. at least, right? Mm. So th- there was no, nobody would go like straight into academia or almost no one would do that. I mean, Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink both were pastors for some time. Um, and that was just a common way of doing it. So mm-hmm. that's already a, a pretty, that, that's the idea that someone who trains pastors needs to have been a pastor himself first. Um, 
um, so that 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 I know that, that that also keeps like the church and the the, the seminary or the theology very close to each other. Um, yeah, so at least like the 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 time span I know best, which is the nineteenth and twentieth century. I know that was the case before that. I'm not sure, but I I would I would think that it was the same before. And I a, a couple come to mind um, that 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 I know who were just who were pastors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I just a couple of like seventeen or or eighteenth century publications in mind were mm-hmm. pastors. Um, Pub- published uh, academic works. Um, I think, yeah. for example, that Tromius is in is a, a famous uh, concordance. Is that the word? Like where you have all the. Yeah. It's oh. like a, a it's like a dictionary with biblical words, and then it says That's where right. you can find yeah, it in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. um, so there's a famous one, I think, from the 18th century, and it was written by a pastor up in Groningen. Oh, okay. um, so I think the answer is yes. Yeah, you wouldn't think question. of a pastor making a biblical concordance, is especially the old school pre-computer yeah. software and. Yeah, it's pretty normative in every tradition prior to the 19th century, right? I mean, in some ways, the neo-Calvinist movement arose. Uh, one of the big conte- contextual factors was trying to push back on uh, the separation of the church and the university and the separation of theology from the university and the separation of theology from the church. All of those things uh, were being uh, th- divided. There was schism. And I mean, that is largely the context that neo-Calvinism arose in, a post-Kantian division, uh, division between church and academy, academy and theology, uh, hi- historical studies and theology, all of that kind of stuff. So that, that is, uh, that's the context. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, if I could just follow up real quickly. Uh, uh, Corey, when you were talking about uh, preaching in a neo-Calvinist church, you, you so passionately emphasized uh, preaching Christ mm. as a way to uh, minister to uh, effectually uh, as well before you do it intellectually or uh, rationally. And um, uh, I've been such a strong advocate for exactly that thing mm. for as far back as I can remember. I've never really connected that with a Neo-Calvinist um, uh, 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 tradition. I mean, I was brought up under Ed Clowney, uh, who really taught me Christ under preaching, and I never would have picked Ed Clowney as a neo Calvinist. Uh, <laughs> he may have been; I have no idea. Yeah. But uh, he really emphasized, you know, biblical theology as the context of preaching Christ. Right? Um, is, is that a, a thing really that just goes back uh, in 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 uh, neo Calvinist preaching? Uh, yeah. The, the centrality of Christ in, pre- in in the preached word. Well, these guys can say more, but I mean. The redemptive historical movement and the and the biblical theological movement is is at least in large part a product of, of Dutch mm-hmm. Reformed theology. So uh, even someone like Ed Clowney is is a product, you know. Of course, Voss um, and Ritterboss uh, and these guys are, are all as you know, as you know very well. Um, so yeah, finding Christ in all of Scripture, yeah. um, preaching Christ. But the other aspect of that too is to return to the neo-Calvinist evangelistic emphasis yeah. or apologetic emphasis, which is that um, speaking to the heart is more important uh, and prior to uh, the life of the mind in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are, need to be integrated, but um, so th- that, that apologetic emphasis is there as well. The effective apologetic, uh, so preaching Christ to the heart and the effective apologetic and redemptive historical hermeneutics, I think all kind of come together in that enterprise. 
Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think there is a, there is a direct line from uh, from Edmund Clowney to to Dutch neo-Calvinism. Yeah. Maybe other lines as well, but there's definitely is an historical connection through Voss and Redebos also. Um, but uh, interestingly, so I grew up in a neo-Calvinist in, in, in a neo-Calvinist. Redebos taught at Compton, right? <laughs> Sorry. Redebos taught at Compton, didn't he? So, so he's a neo-Calvinist, right? Oh, be quiet. <laughs> okay. This this is for the guests. I do want to. This, this is fascinating. Stop, I want to answer this. I am fascinated. I can't wait to keep talking about this during lunch. Uh-huh. The, the subtext the subtext here is that there's been ongoing faculty debate of whether or not Voss could be countered as a neo-Calvinist and Ritterboss and so Gray, on. Gray is fond of claiming that everything that we love is really just neo-Calvinism. But come on, I mean, Voss and Ritterboss, they're neo-Calvinists. Yeah. Are they a second? Are they, what, what, how are they generational? Are they a second generation? Third so generation? So Voss, is Voss is kind of the same as Kuiper and Bavik, and yeah. Kuiper kept trying to pull Voss Back. back. I mean, yeah. he was raised in Grand Rapids in the Dutch Reformed. Right. Are there um, some circles. who hold? Is, is there is there some contrary? I, I feel like I've heard that there's some who would say Voss is sort of a secondary or second generation figure. I mean, I know he's living at the same time. I don't know. If, I, I don't want to enter into your. No, debate, no, this is not. No, no, no. <laughs> no, we're asking you. We don't debate. We're not no, debating no, no. this question. But I'm I asking mean, for you. For me, historically, it's there's no question if Voss or Ritabos are strongly in the new Calvinist. I, I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying, right? Marius. I mean, <laughs> the Dutchman has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> So keep going. Sorry, Ed Clowney has a direct line. No, but I was just going to echo what you said about <laughs> your surprise of seeing the effect connecting effective to neo-Calvinism. So for me, that was exactly the same. So I was I was raised in a neo-Calvinist church, but preaching in my church was generally it was very much redemptive historical, um, uh, preaching Christ from all of Scripture, that kind of stuff. I remember my grandfather, who was who was a preacher himself, um, a pastor, saying talking about the sermons in his youth, saying it was just like an expose, a biblical mm-hmm. theological yeah. expose, mm-hmm. and then it would end with, do you believe this? Yeah. Amen. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the whole the effective right. was gone. Right. So just to say that, um, I think there is a there is a risk in neo-Calvinism where the effective, at least in my strands of tradition where right. I grew up in, there was definitely the risk of the effective going away. Uh-huh. Uh, that has also an historical, uh, lots of historical reasons, but we should maybe not talk about but so for me, I, I needed those guys mm-hmm. to 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 uh, Corey and and Gray to teach me again that New Calvinism is also effective because I had to learn that from other traditions. Mm-hmm. Well, right? I mean that happened so, in the U.S. too. I mean because one of the real dangers in redemptive historical preaching, yeah. and I would regard myself as a redemptive historical preacher, mm-hmm. is that it fails to speak to the people in front of you. Yeah, yeah. and that I mean that's that is its pitfall if you if you if you neglect. Uh, yeah the exper- experiential religion and the fact that you need to be saying the second person you plural you to the people constantly and uh so that is that is the pitfall of discovering redemptive historical preaching but um but but it doesn't have to be I don't no think. no yeah. yeah it's necessary but not sufficient yeah, yeah. right for no. good preaching yeah i do have one last question okay. This has been so cool. I love this conversation. I can't wait to keep doing it uh, after lunch. But um, now I'm a big uh, fan, actually, of the uh, Grace in Common podcast. I listen to it very religiously, faithfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good to hear. And uh, one thing I've appreciated about the uh, uh, of your podcast is just the wide range of subjects that you are covering from, you know, artists to musicians to even politicians, at, at least polit- political-type discussions yeah. and and then ministers, pastors, the academy, and, and things of that nature. 
uh, and you can really see the orthodoxy in a in a real multi-form uh, application in, in the subject matters that you guys discuss. Is there an area that you see right now in um, uh, that you are particularly excited about in terms of the application of neo-Calvinism in a particular area of life that you're kind of seeing happening somewhere that you're thinking, this is really great. We just really are excited about what's going on here. Well, for, for me, for my own context, I think um, in politics. Um, so we have this, this uh, I tweeted about this and I was, it was apparently controversial what I did. I had no idea, but uh, there's always a risk with tweeting. Um, but there's, so there's the Christian Democratic Party in the Netherlands and they, they suffer. They have, I think uh, in the polls only three seats left, but they used to be a huge, um, and this is like the Christian Democratic is a, a party that is partly inherited from uh, Abraham Kuyper's mm-hmm. um, thought, anti-revolutionary party. And I see now that the, 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 the man who's now the new leader of that party, he's all of a sudden using um, anti-revolutionary language again, which has been out of sight for like a decade or maybe two decades. Um, so that's I, I, I think that's fascinating. And I think it, he's right in doing it because it's extremely necessary in the current context. And I think the same goes for the United States. To, to use some of those insights, of course not copy or appristinate, but use some fundamental insight about pluralism, um, about the relation of faith and society, faith and politics that are um, really important for our current situation. So that's just one thing that, that comes to mind for my Dutch context, but maybe others have things to add. Um, there's so many things we can say. One of the areas that I think is really fruitful for the recovery of this tradition is the reframing of the American apologetics debates, especially in American Presbyterianism. You know, we're always siloed between what might be called classical versus evidential versus presuppositional apologetics. And um, the caricature is that the classical view approaches things by way of the rational proofs of God's existence. Um, And then the evidential view is an empirical approach that takes a look at fine-tuning, intelligent design, and so on. And then there's a presuppositional approach, which the caricature of that view, too, would be that, you know, we're just interested in, like, offering one argument, which is the transcendental argument. And I think with the neo-Calvinist position, there's such a pliability to it that anything could be usable in this regard, right? So it goes beyond all these different debates. And um, when we categorize ourselves into these schools of apologetic thought, the temptation could be that when you're engaging in evangelism and apologetics, that you're wanting to convert them to your apologetic methodology rather than actually converting them to Christ, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, yeah. or persuading them, exposing them to their unbelief. Yeah, yeah I'll mention two. One is to pick back up on the political. So you guys may be aware, you mentioned we talked about politics. One of the reasons we talked about politics on Grace and Common was because of the Scottish first minister race. Uh, Kate Forbes, uh, who was part of that race, is from the church I'm a part of, the Free Church of Scotland. And when she was uh, running, um, the big discussion across the the United Kingdom was to what degree does one's faith uh, potentially negate them from the possibility of office. And um, I don't want to say a lot about that, except that the simple fact of that public discussion and all the aftermath that came from it... uh, reset the public mind in some way to help people understand that all uh, all frameworks for understanding reality begin in faith. And huh. that discussion was able to be had in the public sphere in a way that cut through a British common sense realism. 
and made That's it possible again to talk about religion in, in really positive ways in public space. So, I mean, in Scotland, Scotland is, is uh, you know, so, so post-Christian, we often say that, it, that it's, it's, it's become pre-Christian in many respects. And, um, and this, this Christ, the gospel was getting uh, talked about on, on the front page of every paper for a series of months, and this is just in the springtime. And I, I think that uh, that is just one little piece of of evidence that um, of how how hungry we we see people are in uh, a very modern city like Edinburgh for rediscovering the, the truths of Christianity. And that even if they don't quite know it yet, there's there's so much searching and there's so much uh, need, and the effective is is really the the uh, the effective dimension is is definitely the dimension in which the conversations have been most fruitful for us. Um, so we're, we're sharing, you're able in that context to share the gospel so frequently. Mm. I mean, one of the things we've seen is that people are really attracted in our context to spiritism. So there's a lot of modern, um, modern witchcraft, modern spiritual movements, pendulum swinging practices, all sorts of things that's happening as much as I encounter people who are agnostic or atheistic or naturalistic. Mm. And, um, but when you when you're able to have a political theology discussion on the front page of the newspaper, it it opens up doors to the whole populace. So that's one thing. Secondly, lastly, uh, would be that in 2009, uh, I just want people to know about this. So that I'm saying it. in 2009, Tim Keller came to London and gave a conference on the possibilities of starting a church planting movement in Britain. And you know. In Britain, you you have historically a parish parish model ministry, Church of England, Church of Scotland. You don't plant churches; you have you just have parishes. Mm-hmm. They're just established. Um, but he came to talk about that. Several Free Church of Scotland ministers were there for that, and on the car ride home, they pinned down on on some paper a plan to start a church planting network in Scotland. And since then, we have planted churches like Wildfire and. Uh, the church I'm a part of has planted five churches in the last nine years, wow. or the fifth church is going out this January. Uh, I, I've, I've come just to, to be a small part of that. I, I wasn't there for many of them. But um, so there's a real mindset there for church planting being the heartbeat of, of pr- and asking God for revival. And it's, it's really happening. There is, uh, the altar is being set all over the place. Um, and so that's been a really exciting component. And so we're, we're always looking for uh, ministers, we're looking for pe- men that would come and, and help with that. Um, but yeah, those two things, the, the political theology discussions have really opened the door for evangelism. And then the church planting underneath that at the foundations has really set a framework. And yeah, I mean, I think all of that com- does come from a neo-Calvinist uh, philosophy of ministry, um, yeah. uh, as as we've been talking about. So, so how are they how are they doing that in the parish model? Are you going in? You're going into places where the parishes aren't thriving, kind of thing. Is yeah, that, is yeah. I mean, so many churches yeah. that do exist in the parish model are closing their doors every day. Okay. Um, so filling in those spaces. Yeah, filling in those Great. spaces, but also just understanding that uh, you you just really cannot have enough churches. Yeah. Um, it just the, there's no saturation point. Yeah. We don't think, and, and I mean we're not even we're not even in the ballpark of that. But yeah, um, it would be, nice, be nice to have that be a problem. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So. All right. Amen. Well, well, we have Fantastic. three. We have three asks then for this podcast episode. First, go go plant churches in Scotland. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's our first ask. Yeah. Second one, listen to Grace and Common podcast. Um, which I saw the latest episode. You fascinating topics like is Soren Kierkegaard a uh, neo Calvinist? Neo Calvinist, and I have to ask, <laughs> is he? I haven't heard it yet. I saw it just came out. <laughs> is that yeah. a long answer? Complicated. All right, so we'll tease. We'll tease the audience. Go listen to Grace and Common podcast. Thirdly, and this is getting around the occasion for having Corey. It, particularly in town in D.C. right now, is that Corey and Gray and James have translated another volume for Crossway. This is Herman Bobbing's Christianity and Science. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you can probably go online right now to our YouTube page and see the the events of, of tonight up there uh, being posted. But go pick up a copy of Christianity and Science. Uh, just got just just out from Crossway. It's uh, Brand new. Brand new. Gray, tell us why they need to pick up a copy of Christianity and Science. Well, this is a wonderful text from Bobbing. It's a companion volume with his 1904 book, Christian Worldview, which we translated four years ago. It really was released in 2019, the English translation of that. And if in Christian Worldview, it's a sort of macro-level sketch of how Christianity impacts understanding of being, of knowing, of living. Christianity and Science, as we're going to hear more from Corey tonight, mm -hmm. is about the application of that Christian worldview to the disciplines of the university, mm -hmm. whether it's in the humanities, the natural sciences, religion. Um, Christianity actually makes a difference in those different contexts. And when we try to bracket Christianity out, we're not neutral. We've, we've actually replaced the Christian faith with a different dogma, especially materialism, naturalism, mm -hmm. things like that. Corey, you want to say anything to that? No, that's right. Yeah. And we'll we'll be looking at some of that tonight at the lecture here at RTSDC. Um, so, but yeah, that's it. It's a, and it's a great, it really, Christian science, Christianity, Christianity and science really dives in deeper in some ways to the question, what is a worldview and mm -hmm. what does it mean to make a Christian worldview? Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. also a prophetic book, I think, in many ways. Yes. The way it's, it's, so Bavin wrote that book like more than 100, I think 120 years ago. And many things he then writes about the academy, about scholarship, how it was right. going to evolve would the university abandon its Christian roots? It's just like what yeah. happened. So that's, I often refer to that book just to, 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 to make this point. Um, that's fascinating. And now it's no longer just a dusty old book. It's now got a fresh edition. You Dutch know? is not a dis dusty language, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to fortify you. Why did push back when I'm trying to support you, my man? Uh, sorry, man. Yeah, so sorry. if you're interested in Neo-Calvinism, this is an interesting artifact. This is an important aspect of Neo-Calvinist thought. If you're interested in doing ministry and proclaiming the gospel in whatever context you find yourself, this is also a useful and, and needed resource, particularly for those of us in scholarship. So thank you all for translating it. Uh, go online, listen to the recording that will be made tonight. And if you're there tonight, it will be, it will have been good to have seen you. Uh, brothers, thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. And Thanks. this has been really Thanks helpful. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Until next week, take care. gonna be sharing oh i don't want to worry about that i'll, I'll just he'll come up i'm gonna try to remain silent and if i need he's got some barbie questions for yeah. Greg. <laughs> yeah, he wants to. barbie and Oppenheimer. yeah yeah and Bobby. <laughs>
Cal- California is obviously the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that would be a discussion. Would be interesting. It I would be. It would be. Yeah. Actually, that would be that would get the most listens. Let's do it. If we talk about Barbie. Let's, Let's do it. Let's Barbie do neo Calvinism, calling Barbie. and Barbie. Oh. That's the title that's right there. Title right there. Actually, a Barbie have, episode would be really interesting. Well, that's about as orthodox. You just put it in the title and then don't talk about it. <laughs> People will keep waiting. <laughs> we should keep doing it. That's <laughs> no, right. We should keep doing it. That's right. <laughs> Neo-Calvinism, Mila Kunis, and Ashton Kutcher. You know. <laughs> that's right. There's a recent controversy. <laughs> the recent controversy. Oh, that, that'll be hot stuff. This is a joke you can make only once. Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Or we could just do it every time. Yeah. And that's part of the joke. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay.